You're listening to Uncommon Law from the Bloomberg Industry Group. My name's Adam Allington. This is the fourth episode in our series on big tech and social media. Up until now, we've been primarily focused on laws and court cases. But in this, our final episode, we're shifting to the public policy side of the conversation. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol and ongoing disinformation related to the 2020 election, there are many who now say that in its current form, social media poses a real and serious threat to democracy. I know that may sound a bit over the top, but earlier this month, a paper co-authored by 17 researchers and published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science argued that the impact of social media should be treated as a crisis discipline. A crisis discipline is a field in which scientists across multiple and different fields work to address an urgent societal problem, say climate change, for example. In fact, it was just a few days ago when President Biden accused social media platforms of having blood on their hands by enabling the spread of disinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine. Courtney Rosen is a White House reporter for Bloomberg Law and has been tracking this topic. Hey, Courtney, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Courtney, you've been following this fight between the White House and Facebook over vaccine misinformation. When did it all start? So it's been ongoing since President Biden took office. This is not new. And I would say it really spilled out into the public eye in the last week or so. On July 15th, and that was a Thursday, I was sitting in the White House press briefing room where I sit pretty much every day, and out walks the Surgeon General. And he normally doesn't come to talk to us in those briefings. And he comes to present this report that his team has written about misinformation generally and how it's affecting health outcomes. Today, I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the dangers of health misinformation. Surgeon General advisories are reserved for urgent public health threats. And while those threats have often been related to what we eat, drink, and smoke, today we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. So this is Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States. And what he said is pretty astounding, that vaccine misinformation poses the same threat to human health as something like cigarettes or obesity. And the unchecked spread of this misinformation, particularly online, is killing people. Now, health misinformation didn't start with COVID-19. What's different now, though, is the speed and scale at which health misinformation is spreading. He doesn't explicitly say Facebook. He doesn't explicitly mention a platform. He's just saying this issue is costing us lives. So he comes in, he takes some questions, and then he walks out. And then Jen Psaki comes up to talk to us, who is the White House press secretary. And she was a lot more pointed at Facebook. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with In her remarks, Saki cites one particular study which claims that just 12 people are responsible for 65% of the anti-vaccine misinformation on social media, many of whom remain active on Facebook. She goes on to list a number of recommendations the administration is urging the company to take. Facebook should provide publicly and transparently data on the reach of COVID vaccine misinformation, not just engagement, but the reach of the misinformation and the audience that it's reaching. Second, we have proposed that they create a robust enforcement strategy that bridges their properties and provides transparency about the rules. 
Third, Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful violative posts. Posts that will be within their policies for removal often remain up for days. That's too long. The information spreads too quickly. So, Courtney, the argument that the White House press secretary and other policy experts seem to be making is that the spread of COVID disinformation isn't some kind of fluke, but rather an example of social media working exactly as designed. Yes. And so fast forward to Friday afternoon, the president was getting ready to leave for Camp David for the weekend. Helicopters waiting on the south lawn of the White House. And there's a whole bunch of reporters, me included, standing out there waiting for him to walk out. And he walks out and NBC's Peter Alexander sticks out his microphone and gets the president to walk over and says, Mr. President, what's your message for companies like Facebook when it comes to COVID disinformation? They're killing people. I mean, it really, look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated. And and they're they're killing people. Which, of course, is quite an explosive statement to make. And I'm standing there and I go to write it down and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to lead every newscast tonight. And of course it did. Good evening and thank you for joining us. We're going to begin tonight with what the White House is calling a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And it comes as President Biden leveled an extraordinary charge against Facebook, accusing hmm. the social media. And what was Facebook's response to these accusations? So Facebook issued a statement saying that they won't be distracted by accusations, which they say aren't supported by facts that more than 2 billion people have viewed authoritative information about the coronavirus and vaccines on Facebook. So basically pushing back on this narrative that Facebook is the cause of the administration's difficulties in getting people vaccinated. And the White House itself has since tried to walk back President Biden's original statement, saying it was actually the people posting the misinformation itself who the president meant to accuse of killing people, not Facebook the company. Courtney Rosen covers the White House for Bloomberg Law. Thanks again for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. Last week, Democratic senators introduced a bill that would hold social media companies responsible for the spread of misinformation about vaccines, fake COVID-19 cures, and other harmful health-related posts on their sites. The Health Misinformation Act targets a provision in Section 230 that protects platforms from being held liable for what their users post. The bill would strip the platforms of that legal protection if their algorithms promote health misinformation during a public health crisis. The legislation leaves it up to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to define what constitutes health misinformation. The power of large internet platforms to amplify or silence certain voices at scale poses more than just a threat to public health. Increasingly, many policymakers are warning that social media also poses a grave threat to democracy. Francis Fukuyama is an author and political scientist at Stanford University. Among his many writings is a recent white paper for the Journal of Democracy titled Making the Internet Safe for Democracy. So, Mr. Fukuyama, what are the primary threats that led you to write this paper? Well, I think that the public discussion of this has been a little bit confused because a lot of people point to fake news and conspiracy theories and all of the bad content that's been on the internet uh, as a target of you know policies uh, and, and basically the desire to stamp this stuff out. And we don't think that this is actually the appropriate issue because 
first of all, that kind of speech, although it's very unfortunate and, and really poisons you know, the atmosphere of American politics, is actually protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Americans have the right to say any, you know, any damn thing they please, even if it's wrong or false or politically harmful. I think the real problem is different, uh, and that has to do with the ability of these large platforms to either amplify or to silence political voices and therefore to really shape the kind of political discussion that Americans are having. So in terms of the question of misinformation, disinformation, most of the major platforms have stepped up their policies around self-moderation, taking down certain posts or hashtags related to conspiracy theories or lies about the election. I mean, even going as far as to ban former President Trump. But I gather you feel that self-moderation alone doesn't go far enough. Well, you know, another problem aside from the sheer power of these platforms is the fact that users really have no understanding of why their feeds look the way they do. You know, why does the Google search algorithm produce the rank ordering of, of search results that it does? Or why does Facebook or the other platforms give you the kind of news feeds and suggestions that they do? So what is the solution that you and some of your co-authors are proposing? Well, we have a very specific proposal that we label middleware. Uh, middleware traditionally was something that stood between, you know, an application and a user. And this is what we would suggest for the whole issue of content moderation. In fact, Jack Dorsey just endorsed some version of this, where essentially the platforms would outsource content moderation. They would not be responsible for it, but it would be given to a layer of competitive companies that would offer different versions of content moderation. If I remember correctly, Dorsey's suggestion was for a kind of app store approach where individuals could pick and choose what kind of social algorithm they wanted, rather than just having to take the version that the company offered. I think what we need to do is get back to a more decentralized internet where a user could actually say, yes, I would like to use a middleware company that certifies the reliability of the data sources that I am served up when I you know, type in a search term, for example. And if you actually could create this kind of a competitive layer, you wouldn't have to have the government involved in making the decision about what's credible, what's not, what's a conspiracy theory, what's not. Uh, in a way, it would be a, a bit of a market-based system, but you would still need the government to establish the rules of the game for how these companies operated, how they interacted with the platforms, what their business models were, and the like. In your paper, you outline a kind of heavy and light version of this middleware approach, where the heavy version basically involves the companies giving up all control over the algorithms, and then the light version is more akin to what Twitter has already been doing in terms of labeling tweets. But in both of these cases, I really can't see any company going along with this because it takes away their golden goose, which is the capacity to deliver targeted advertising at scale. So I think that whether the platforms like it or not depends on how heavy the intervention is. In a way, they may like the lighter forms of intervention because 
right now they're put in this very difficult political situation. Like if they take Trump off the feed, they really annoy, you know, 40% of their users. And I think they're very uncomfortable being put in that kind of position. On the other hand, yeah, you're right, it's going to affect their business models. And this is why I think that market forces alone are not going to lead to this kind of solution. I think you probably are going to need some statutory intervention by Congress that would mandate the platforms open up their APIs to middleware companies that could then ride on top of them. And they would also, I think, have to specify some kind of revenue sharing. And that's obviously something that they're not going to do voluntarily. Francis Fukuyama is an author and political scientist at Stanford University. In addition to this kind of tech-based solution offered by middleware, others have noted that there already is a precedent for government regulation of algorithms. So I study artificial intelligence governance. Alex Engler is a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and also teaches data science and policy at Georgetown. Really what that means is what governments should do about how the world is evolving due to the advance of artificial intelligence. So Alex, you've done some digging into the laws and regulations that apply to artificial intelligence or AI. Can you tell me what kinds of algorithms or AI applications you're talking about and what kinds of companies these are? These are more companies that are building software for hiring people, for doing employee surveillance or employee management in the workplace. Um, They're selling admissions tools to colleges and universities to predict and change enrollment, right? How much tuition do I have to give this tuition remission? Do I have to give the student to get them to come to my university? It's another example, right? And there's tons of these. uh, And these algorithms typically already are subject to at least some law, right? For instance, it's, you know, I wrote recently about employment algorithms, um, for used for hiring and how they, uh, I and, and others suspect that they could be discriminatory against people of color, um, very likely women, very likely people with disabilities or with accents. Um, and we have laws that say that's illegal, right? We, we, already, we already say it's illegal to discriminate in employment. And so there, that's a scenario where we need to think about how to modernize regulation and enforcement, right? How to do investigations of software systems and to see if these are really sort of breaking current law. So correcting for bias in the algorithmic hiring process is one thing, but when it comes to policing speech on websites like Facebook and Twitter, that's a horse of a whole different color. Yeah, and so that approach doesn't work quite as well for social media. You can't go to social media and say, hey, we're gonna audit your algorithms to make sure they're not doing anything illegal because it's mostly issues of speech. And and while some of it is illegal, right? Some of it's um, illegal pornography. Some of it is sort of, you know, for instance, um, child pornography or revenge porn. Um, Some of it is hate speech. Some of it is uh, harassment or libel, but the vast majority of it is speech, right? The vast majority is is not illegal. And so while there is this emerging understanding of how to regulate AI in some places, right? In hiring and um, employee surveillance and uh, tuition and, and college acceptance. We don't quite have, we sort of need a different way of thinking through what to do in the social media space. It's a, it's a separate category of, of what government's role is. So if AI doesn't provide the exact model for the regulation of social platforms, what's the takeaway here? 
Is it just that AI offers a kind of conceptual framework to begin the process? There's two parts of that that I think are totally true. One, which is governments need to build the capacity to do this type of oversight. You know, the staff, the expertise, the secure environments for holding on to and analyzing data. That applies, I think, certainly to the areas where companies might directly be violating the law, uh, financial services, and also websites that have, you know, illegal content. One of the issues where they differ is because we're not quite as sure we want government having a really clear role in speech and in online content. You might have that be done less by government agencies and more by independent researchers. So rather than saying, hey, you know, for employment algorithms, we might have the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission go provide some oversight. For financial services, we might have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau go provide services. For tuition, we might have the Department of Education go say, hey, we're going to, you know, take a look at what you're doing here. Whereas for social media, maybe it needs to be just academics, right? Rather than a government going in, maybe we can do what's called independent researcher access. And that way, a third party who's neutral can go in and evaluate the choices that these social media companies are making without it being necessarily a government intervention in in quite the same way. Alex Engler is a fellow at the Brookings Institution studying the intersection of artificial intelligence and government. Alex, thanks for taking time to talk to me. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Adam. Besides the sort of practical solutions posed by people like Fukuyama and Engler, others say that the most effective way to safeguard the public against the harms of social media would be to just create a whole new federal agency. I believe very strongly that there needs to be a coordinated, digital-based, digital thinking agency rather than bolting this on to an industrial-era agency of the federal government. Tom Wheeler is former chairman of the FCC under President Obama. Mr. Wheeler, the last federal agency that was created was the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which was in part a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis. After the CFPB, the next youngest agency was the Department of Homeland Security, which, as we know, was a result of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So the public appetite for expanding the federal government is typically quite low unless it's motivated by some kind of true crisis. So do you think we are now in such a crisis? You know, Adam, I think that we are living on a continuum. And, you know, I can remember when I was chairman and the the message coming out of Congress was that somehow the Internet was magic and that any time government would touch it, it would break that magic. I think they've moved beyond that now. I think they've seen the consequences of the magic, and they may, and the different parties may see it different ways. You know, I, I think it's an evolutionary process. We put the digital platform agency idea forward in order to be part of that discussion. You've been among the loudest voices calling for a new agency to regulate big tech. 
And people like the CEOs of Facebook and Twitter have said that they agree that some new regulations would be beneficial, though these are mostly for things the platforms are already doing anyway, such as transparency reports. I think history teaches us that innovators always make the rules because only they see which way things are going. And this was true in the Industrial Revolution and it's true in the Internet Revolution. But when those practices, which are obviously self-beneficial, begin to impinge on the rights of others and the public interest, then the public steps in and says, no, wait a minute, we want to establish guardrails here. Remember when Mark Zuckerberg was first before Congress and, you know, and he described himself as, well, kind of, we're just a bunch of engineers uh, out here building platforms. Well, but what are the platforms doing? They're making decisions. So it's not just a bunch of, of engineers building things. And, you know, it is time to start thinking about what are the consequences of those actions and how do you put guardrails in that will allow that kind of ingenuity and innovation, but at the same point in time, you know, protect the public interest. But there is a counterpoint that some make, that federal bureaucracy with all of its rigid rules and red tape is fundamentally incompatible with the rapid pace of technology. That standing up a new agency would likely take many years, and therefore a better approach might be to just grant more authority to existing agencies like the FCC or DOJ. What do you think about that approach? Well, I mean, I think what's exciting about being alive right now is that we get to wrestle with these issues and that there are no simple answers. And again, I go back to the fact that I think you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. You've got to look, you've got to take a holistic look. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to deal with the speech issue because the speech issue is an impact, is a result of the lack of competition issue, which is a result of the privacy issue, which gave the monopolization of, uh, of that information, that private information. And so all of them relate to everything else, and we have to think about this holistically. Tom Wheeler is a former chairman of the FCC and a current fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Tom, many thanks for joining me. Thank you, Adam. At the turn of the century, few could have imagined the degree to which tech companies and social media would now dominate our communications ecosystem. However, this isn't the first time regulators have surveyed the media landscape and found it sorely lacking. Sixty years ago, Newton Minow, a 35-year-old newly appointed chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, delivered one of the most famous come-to-Jesus speeches by a government official in history. In his first official speech as chairman of the FCC, Minow addressed a group of television executives at a meeting of the National Association of Broadcasters in Washington, D.C., where he then tasked them with an assignment. Go spend an entire day watching your own broadcasts. And stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. So Minow just 
lays into these TV guys, telling them that their programming is basically just total crap. Blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, Western bad men, Western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons. I have to say, I find it oddly charming that there was a time when one could still consider a bunch of cartoons, Westerns, and corny detective shows as a vast wasteland. I mean, compare that to what you would get on just a short walk through Twitter today. At any rate, Minnow isn't pulling any punches here. Why is so much of television so bad? I've heard many answers. Demands of your advertisers. Competition for ever higher ratings. The need always to attract a mass audience. The high cost of television programs. The insatiable appetite for programming material. These are some of the reasons. Unquestionably, these are tough problems, not susceptible to easy answers. But I am not convinced that you have tried hard enough to solve them. Back in the early days of television, many viewed government's role as expanding viewers' choices with the hope that increased competition would lead to better programming as well as to protect the public interest, which increasingly is the approach many legal and policy experts now say needs to be applied to big tech. You know, in 1962, when my dad gave his speech, there were two and a half national networks. So there really weren't very many choices. And yet, as my dad was very uh, prescient in noting, for many families, many children, they spent more time watching television than they did in school. This is Martha Minow, Newton's daughter, who is a law professor at Harvard and the author of a new book called Saving the News. In it, she argues that two words, public interest, need to be reinserted into our communication policy in order to regulate against the negative effects of social media. The amplification of false information, conspiracy theories, and even hatred, which uh, is a feature I don't think uh, was in anyone's contemplation in the 1960s. Moreover, really not on the horizon at that time, but uh, dominant right now, we're dealing with a world in which broadcast is just one slice of the content creation and delivery. Gosh, you can say that again. I mean, besides TV and cable, there's Facebook, YouTube, WhatsApp, Instagram, WeChat, TikTok, etc. Right. And the justification for a public interest obligation available for broadcast is not there legally in the same way for internet-based communication, that justification being the scarcity of the airwaves. Martha, in your book, you write that the Supreme Court acknowledges not just the free speech rights of individuals, but also the rights of listeners and news consumers. What are you talking about there? Well, in my book, I argue really three things. One, that the news industry in particular is in a crisis in this country. And there's only one private industry even mentioned in the United States Constitution, which is the press. And now that it's really on the ropes, uh, is there latitude for government action? And I argue there is. And not only is there government uh, latitude, there might even be an obligation, given the centrality 
of news in informing people so that we can be self-governing and make a democracy work. The second thing that I argue is that not only is government action compatible with the Constitution, it's been consistently the case since the beginning of this country that the government has been deeply involved in shaping, subsidizing, regulating media. The Postal Service, from the get-go, authorized by the Constitution, created a subsidy to have uh, cheaper rates for news delivery. And you go from that all the way through government subsidy of the telegraph, government subsidy of radio, of course, the licensing of broadcast, rules about consumer protection, rules about illegal threats, all compatible with the First Amendment. Uh, and finally, support, uh, financial support directly for public media. It sounds a bit like you're advocating for a kind of fairness doctrine for the internet, a policy originally adopted by the FCC back in 1949 that required broadcasters to present both sides of controversial issues because there was a public interest obligation that was predicated on the idea that the radio airwaves belonged to everyone and had limited bandwidth. But the internet doesn't operate under these same principles of scarcity. So does the fairness doctrine comparison still apply if one is concerned about things like truth or educating the public? Well, I think that it's really important to uh, be clear that the I am very committed to the First Amendment and freedom of speech, but what it restricts is the government. There is nothing in the First Amendment that restricts private uh, actors, private companies, from, for example, moderating what they allow to be posted on an Internet website. The First Amendment doesn't apply. And some general diffuse view of First Amendment values is just misplaced. Publishers broadcasters, anybody who is in the business of giving a platform to others, edits, selects, chooses what to amplify. What's new is the turning over of that choice to algorithms, to computer-generated ideas that actually are not accountable to anyone and are only oriented to maximizing numbers of eyeballs. That is not a way to achieve the ultimate goals of quality, much less allowing uh, truth to dominate falsehoods um, or to overcome conspiracy theories or hate. What would this kind of digital public infrastructure look like in practice? I mean, we do have some laws that apply to online content around things like harassment or pornography, but we don't have much more than that. If you were in charge, what would be your key priorities? Well, I think that there are really two major strategies that I would support. One is to directly and indirectly regulate and oversee the Internet platforms that are themselves actually interfering with the news ecosystem. They are taking the eyeballs and the ads away and taking the content, allowing the posting of uh, journalistic reports without paying for it. 
So for people who aren't aware, what Australia did is they passed a law that basically requires internet platforms like Facebook and Google to negotiate directly with news sites to have the rights to share content. I sure have. That basically requires internet platforms like Facebook and Google to negotiate directly with news sites to have the rights to share content. These digital giants loom very, very large in our economy and on the digital landscape. Many Australians rely on Facebook uh, for their information. That being said, they should also pay the traditional news media businesses for generating content. The person you just heard was Australian Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. And initially, you know, there were uh, internet platforms that said that we won't uh, make our services available in uh, Australia. Well, they blinked and they are now making them available. So that seems to me uh, an avenue definitely worth pursuing. In your book, you note that the U.S. has a long, if forgotten, history of subsidizing media, with public radio and public TV being one of the most recent examples. And you say this approach could be used to create a kind of public option for the internet. Right. And I would just add that public money paid for the research that created the internet. It was public money, a National Science Foundation grant that paid for the development of Google's first algorithm. All of the money that's made off of those investments is in private hands. Uh, I think there could be taxation of those who have reaped the benefits, and the money should go into building a public alternative, an alternative public internet that elevates quality, that allows individuals to uh, choose what they see, and to demonstrate that there's a market for that, and to hope also to create competition so that others emulate. Martha Minow is a professor of law at Harvard University and author of the new book, Saving the News. And that, dear listeners, is where we're going to leave this discussion for today. If this is the first episode of Uncommon Law that you've heard, I would sincerely encourage you to go back and listen to the first three episodes in our series about social media and big tech regulation, as well as previous seasons about the Derek Chauvin trial or the struggles of large law firms to hire and retain diverse attorneys. And stay tuned for our next season, which will be coming out shortly. You won't want to miss it, I promise. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Courtney Rosen and Marissa Horn. Additional editing from Andrew Childers. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Again, thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel, 
But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.